Welcome to World is Burning, the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. I'm Elise. And I'm Olivia. Happy Halloween. It's Halloween. Halloween. The best, the best yes. time of year. I feel like I've done kind of spooky things every weekend and then I don't actually have That's any Halloween fun. plans, which is okay. kind of my ideal. Yeah, I I have some loose, loose Halloween plans <laughs> that I might like make half of. Do you but have, I have a couple's costume with I, land? Okay, I do. So this is this is so funny. Like, I love Halloween, but, like, circumstances of the past few years and just, like, kind of not having energy around Halloween. Yeah. I just, I haven't really done any crazy costumes in the past few years. And also, I've never done a costume with land. So I was like, all right, we're doing this this year. And I really wanted to figure out a costume to incorporate my pink hair. Mm. right now because I was like otherwise like I don't know that's just like too bold I feel like I would need to get a wig or something I don't know so I was just like okay what is pink and it's it's surprising how many how few like pink characters there are really Um, yes and a lot of them are like cartoons that I don't really know so I'm like I want to be something that I know right um and so one of my friends suggested Toadette from like like Mario oh okay so I got like a pink fluffy dress and white, like chunky white boots. And I have a beret that I need to sew little spots on. Oh, my gosh. Like, toadstool. And then Lan has like little overalls and a Mario hat and a red shirt. So is he going to grow um, a mustache or does he, he have already a mustache? Has a mustache. Okay. I, <laughs> I mean, he, he's been growing it out. I haven't seen him. He's been growing it out. Um, It might not be quite Mario level, but I'm like. I'm basically wearing an outfit and then putting a bray on and being like, I'm Toadette, guys. It's fine. That's so funny. So it'll be more of like an outfit. But yeah, he has a little mustache going. Those um, are the best costumes, though. You did. I think you did a wrap up for. Yeah, for Slow Notion. I did that. Uh, at, we did last Halloween, but like we kind of um, put it together with another piece. But just like costumes that are really easy to do with like with stuff from your closet if yeah you don't want to buy like a shitty Halloween costume that's going to fall apart like halfway through the night right so things like uh Patrick Bateman from American Psycho just like classic like business attire but like with blood uh splatter blood in your face <laughs> whatever yeah just things like that that are really really easy to do yeah so I love that if you need <laughs> if you need uh inspiration this will go up before Halloween. Maybe I'll I'll put a link under like the dump section of like if you need Halloween inspo. Yes. You always here. have the best inspo for things because then I like I don't think of my closet that way. And then I'm like, oh, well, I do have a lot of these things already. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like it's great. Yeah. Um, there's so much stuff. But yeah, I don't think I'm dressing up. I went to a haunted house this weekend. This is for the dump Ooh. anyways, but um, okay. which was very fun. We're doing pre-dump we're doing the pre-dump because it's a halloween episode who gives a it's shit a halloween. it's yeah, the evening exactly. like it's fine <laughs> yes um but i um we invited a couple of people to go with us who thought it was like a more of a costume thing and then they were mad at us for mm. not that none of the rest of us were wearing costumes so oh, i no. got someone's like red cape and then i had volunteered i put like a glow stick around my neck that allowed the characters to like essentially touch me or like bring like separate me from my group or you oh, know no. like not uh, I was gonna say yeah. harass that's not the right word but like kind of <laughs> in a in, in yeah. a ethical consensual way like yes 
scare the shit out of me. Um, so in the first haunted house we went into, I was the only one wearing that. And they like had me go up this ladder and go down this slide. And immediately the, the cape just like choked me basically. And I oh, broke, no. I broke this person's cape that I didn't even know what their name was, but, um, it was my friend's cousin and I was like, sorry. Um, but yeah, yeah. but it, also with that, I was like, it's great that like, yes, this is probably a, a cape from like a cheap costume, but it's the kind of thing that can, it can be little red riding hood. It can be like literally anything. And like, yeah, even the way yeah. that I broke it, you can just like sew it back together. Um, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So like, and the, the breakdown thing that I did was paired with, uh, another, person on the blog a group of their friends has like a community costume closet so Mm -hmm. it's all about like okay like these basic items are great for like these kind of costumes and then add this and it's a whatever so I love I love that kind of stuff and yeah I like to think about wardrobes like that Mm -hmm. yeah should we get into my story sorry yeah let's get into your story well because I was like you could dress up as an alien I Last week, I don't even really remember what the, the context was, but I was trying to think of my Halloween story and we were like, oh, maybe you should do something with aliens. And so I literally Googled aliens, climate change. I'm going to admit this is a Halloween episode for some reason. This holiday also counts as like low research pressure. I'm not doing an entire yeah. thesis here. I have two sources yeah. and they're two of the same author. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, OK, we're going with it because. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. But also you could dress up as an alien and that would be cool because I think mm-hmm. our like concepts of what aliens, we think aliens look like are really interesting. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the story, like I said, is based on a study of possible histories of alien planets, which was researched by a team of astronomers, an earth scientist, and an urban ecologist. Um, it was published mm-hmm. in Astrobiology, volume 18, issue 5 in May of 2018. Um, And then one of the authors from that, Adam Frank, who's an astrophysicist, wrote an article for The Atlantic around the same time called How Do Aliens Solve Climate Change? And Mm -hmm. of course, that was the title that drew me in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also kind of like explains the study for the layman because I did read the study, but it's like even me with a relative amount of like academic background, I'm like, there are a lot of terms in here that I'm like barely hanging on to and like a lot of yeah. scientific formulas and stuff that it's like, mm-hmm. OK, I kind of understand where we're going, but not completely. Um, yeah. But also this idea of like the histories of alien planets is so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, they don't really call them aliens. They refer to them as exo-civilizations, like exoplanets, exo-biospheres. So basically like the familiar elements of life that we know, but exo as in outside of our own planet Earth. Okay. And considering that there are, by scientific estimates, two trillion galaxies or more that might exist, Mm -hmm. each with billions of planets, like our Milky Way has an estimated 100 billion planets, We can safely assume from that that there are trillions, if not billion trillions of planets or more. All of those numbers actually do kind of check out. Um, Yeah. But I just find it fascinating that astronomers work with numbers that like we haven't even heard of or or used regularly in our lives. Like I remember hearing a Google that that's a number I honestly forgot. Um, Yeah. A Google is 100 zeros. A quadrillion is 15 zeros. 
like okay. these numbers that are just like massive. So if you consider that number of like planets that are or many of them orbiting around stars, like there's got to have been civilization, exo civilizations on some of those in some timeline and likely yeah. civilizations that have risen and fallen just like have happened yeah. on Earth. Yeah. Especially when you're talking like billions of years and also like when we were talking about um, the asteroids mm. and how like one time like a Mars sized thing like crashed into Earth, Earth and it was all like molten Earth. Like there could be planets that like got got obliterated and like all evidence of life just gone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no fossils. No nothing. Or they're and... way too unfathomably far away for us to like even know yeah. they exist. Basically what I'm trying yeah. to say is aliens exist. Um, exo civilizations exist. Um, yes. But yeah, then also, like, if you consider the history of the Earth and species that have lived and gone extinct just in Earth's very comparatively short existence, mm-hmm. the possibility that there are exo civilizations seems like much more real. Yeah. So, this group of scientists decided to study the potential rise and fall of these theoretical exo civilizations, particularly any that might have harvested resources from resources. From their home planet in the same way that humans are doing. Um, mm-hmm. I love the title of the study. It's called the Am- the Anthropocene Generalized. I think that's just really funny. Oh, we, yeah. we did a whole episode like a long time ago. I think yeah. April of like 2021 or something. We did an okay. episode about the Anthropocene and like that whole term. Mm-hmm. Um, it also reminds me of John Green's book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Anthrop- <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the Anthropocene Generalized is just like funny. Yes. So the team created this simplified model for the evolution evolution of a civilization on a planet. So basically, the planet is the source of the civilization's energy resources. The planet gives the civilization their resources. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to build their civilization, the aliens, I'm going to call them aliens, use these okay. given resources. Yes. So if you think about the ways that we eat food to give us energy, or how we use fossil fuels to keep the lights on and move about the world in many ways. Yeah. So in order to simplify this model, they only use two types of energy sources, basically a good and a bad one. Um, One Mm -hmm. with a high planetary impact, so think fossil fuels, and the other with a low impact. So think like solar energy, wind energy, something like that. Mm -hmm. So now using the concepts of population biology, you can infer that as a civilization used more energy, their population would grow. So more mm-hmm. energy equals more babies, basically. Yes. I'm always hesitant, especially on a climate podcast, to talk about population theories. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I think you'll see, like, by the end of this, why I'm not even, well, I'm mentioning it now, but, like, this this is not related to the overpopulation myth and, like, myths that we have too many people um, because so many of those are rooted in racist ideas, including Malthusian yeah. um, ideas that we talked about in the Great Potato Famine episode a couple uh-huh. weeks ago. Like, mm, but basic, like, population theory that you learned, population biology that you learned mm-hmm. in class, like, that's that's what we're talking about. So, like, yeah. the way that a lion population can explode when there's a surplus of hyenas and then very mm-hmm. rapidly dec- decline when the hyena population is overhunted and civilizations of all kinds can rapidly grow when there's more energy available. Mm-hmm. What the lions don't think about during the surplus, though, is how their new demands could potentially overwhelm the limited supply. 
Mm -hmm. So they build this model for two energy sources, one high and one low. And sometimes they would allow, like in certain models, they would allow the civilizations to switch from the high impact to the low impact when things were seedy. Like they were like, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to change. They would allow them to do that. And sometimes they wouldn't. And basically what resulted were three distinct kinds of civilizational histories. Um, I'm going to read these pretty much verbatim because, um, like I said, Adam Frank did a really great job of uh, explaining these. He has a book. Wait. Let me find the title because I immediately. Ooh, yes. Uh, that sounds honestly so interesting. He, All of this sounds so interesting. He's also very good with titles. So it, it's like a, I know that's kind of silly, but I love titles. And so. Yes. This book is called Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth. And if you look, Elise, at the like okay. the cover is Shit. all like kind of like the northern lights over a mountain range type of thing. Okay. That honestly might be my next audiobook yeah, because it, I already borrowed it, will... it on Libby. Okay. Amazing. I it that would it <laughs> from what you're saying like it would be a com- perfect companion to what I'm reading right now that I'm going to talk about in the dump. Okay. Okay. So, I can't yeah, wait. This for is that. all I'm like it's ah, all this is all connected exactly. Okay. Um anyway, continue. So yeah. So like I'm straight up going to read this verbatim because he's a great writer. He explains it really well and he literally did the study so like I'm not going to try and rephrase it for him as I've been doing Mm -hmm. for the earlier part of this story because it's just not going to go well. So Uh there are three distinct kinds of civilizational histories. The first, and he says the alarmingly most common, is what we call the Mm die-off. As the civilization used energy, its numbers grew rapidly, but the use of the resource Mm -hmm. also pushed the planet away from the conditions the civilization grew up with. I find that really like Mm -hmm. that concept interesting, like that you... And I feel like this relates a lot to our experience Wait, can you of the repeat Earth. That yeah. One more time. Yeah. As the civilization used energy, its numbers grew grew rapidly. Population grows. Uh-huh. But the use of the resource also pushed the planet away from the conditions the civilization grew up with. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So like, I mean, in the same way that the the Earth doesn't exist in the same way that it did in 1750 or 1450 or yeah. whatever, like the conditions that our population has grown with are not going to be the same as they are now or in a hundred years or a thousand years. Yeah. So back to what he said, as the evolution of the civilization and planet continued, the population skyrocketed, blowing past the planet's limits. The population, in other words, overshot the planet's carrying capacity. Um, Hmm. Then came a big reduction in the civilization's population until both the planet and the civilization reached a steady state. Um, After that, the population and the planet stopped changing. A sustainable planetary civilization was achieved, but at a very high cost. So in many of those models, they saw as much as 70% of the population perish before a steady state was reached. Um, They Mm. said, in reality, it's not clear that a complex technological civilization like ours could survive such a catastrophe. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought it was funny, um, especially in the like layman article about this. He was like, we're mm-hmm. not worried about alien economics or like alien social dynamics or like how they have sex. We're not worried about any of that. Yeah. This is truly just like the most simplified model. And yeah, maybe especially for me as such like a social science cultural person, like it's sort of helpful to hear these perspectives sometimes because it's so not how like my brain processes the world. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like so emotional and so like assume that other people are that way or that like our world is ruled that way when like many yeah. of these kind of concrete laws are not based mm-hmm. in that. Um, yeah. Okay. So the second trajectory is the good one. They called it the soft landing. He says the population grew and the planet changed, but together they made a smooth transition to new balanced equilibrium. The civilization had changed the planet, but without triggering a massive die off. That's pretty Mm. good. I like that. Pretty ideal. And then the final class of trajectory was the most wholesome or no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) This is this is me um, only reading the first and last letter of a word. And then assuming that I know. Yes. Another word. <laughs> the final class of trajectory was the most worrisome. Full, worrisome. <laughs> full, different. Very different. <laughs> Full-blown collapse. I'll just, oh boy. I'll just go not barrel straight through that one. Opposite of yeah, wholesome. it's not wholesome. Um, as in the die-off histories, the population blew up, but these planets just couldn't handle the avalanche of the civilization's impact. The host worlds mm. were too sensitive to change like a house plant that withers when it's moved. Conditions on these planets mm. deteriorated so fast that the civilization's population nosedived all the way to extinction. And so with mm. some of those planets, like I said, they were allowed to change to the low impact. But if they were allowed to change past a certain tipping point, it might like help their population survive for a little bit longer, but then they would still mm. eventually dive off. <laughs> so on that note, um, what can we learn from this? I think the science scientists biggest takeaway was that this is a highly simplified model of the possibilities and it's meant sort of as mm-hmm. an encouragement of more research with more complex variables maybe there has mm-hmm. been more research this was published in 2018 i'm sure there has been more research yeah since then and i hope there has mm-hmm. they say it would be interesting for example to factor in these tipping points when it comes to coupled civilization planet systems I like that term, coupled civilization planet systems. Okay. I feel like to me, that's like the most scientific way or like astronomical way that you can basically say like we are nature. Like we are civilizations and planets are coupled together in a system. I love that. I just want to talk about Earth like this so badly. Yeah. And then people be like, what are you talking but about? I'm like, we're space guys. We are. Yeah. We're the aliens. We are a coupled civilization <laughs> planet system. I know that that doesn't make as much sense right out loud as I'm realizing, but like hopefully I'll I'll put this in the show notes and stuff. You can see what it's written out as. But yeah, it's like our existence is inherently tied to the earth. And if we successfully transition towards a low impact resource like solar or wind or the many possibilities that exist in our actual um, like technological possibilities, um, Mm -hmm. those are still like in different ways gifts from the earth to us. You know, yeah. but just in in a lower impact way. Um, mm-hmm. And there are many versions of this where things do not go off that tipping point and do not go down to zero. So, like, if anything that I've said in the last few minutes is like, whatever, sending you down the spiral of climate despair. Don't worry about that. Um, we have episodes about that. You can listen to that, too. Um, yeah. But I kind of love this way of thinking about, like, renewable energy as, like, gifts from the earth to us. Because we're a couple yeah. and we're dating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that we're in the honeymoon phase and they still want to impress us, even though we're a little bit toxic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, actually, that was um something that Adam Frank called us couple like called us cosmic teenagers with power, but little wisdom. Like 
Mm. Basically, we have to stop treating the earth like we are cosmic teenagers and start acting with a little bit more authority. Yeah. Um, Which also I feel like we always like think we know best. Yeah. But like it is it is good to think that like in like in terms of like human knowledge, we know the most we ever have. Mm -hmm. But then like in terms of like cosmic, like interplanetary knowledge. Yeah. Little babies. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's just kind of good to imagine, like, to remember how small you are. Like, there are always those comics that just, like, zoom out and it's like, this is you and these are your problems. Not to say that your problems don't matter or that, like, what we do isn't important because that's definitely not the case. But, like, Mm -hmm. it is so much wider than, like, we could ever imagine. Um, Mm -hmm. So just in the spirit of, like, basically taking Adam Frank's work and saying it out loud. Um, I really like the last two sentences of his article, so I'm going to read those. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also a promo for his book, which we're all going to read and do a story time or like do a book club on story time. Yes. Our dawning realization that we are profoundly shaping Earth's future provides us with the impetus to stop acting like cosmic teenagers with power but little wisdom. From that perspective, The true narrative of climate change isn't some small local drama of Democrats versus Republicans or business interests versus environmentalists. Instead, it's a cosmic test, one that gives us the chance to join those who successfully cross this burning frontier or the chance to be consigned to the scrap heap of civilizations too short-sighted to take care of their own planet. Hmm. Bam, mic drop. That's that's all. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Anyways, and aliens are real. <laughs> I love I I love it. And like, okay, something about also thinking of things that way. Cause like, like you said, like that's like not how the majority of us think. Mm-hmm. Like we're mostly like, like, did you see what's on TikTok right, right now? I don't know. But then like thinking about that almost makes it less stressful. It makes it a little more stressful in some ways, but then it's like, I don't know, zooming out like that is because we get so caught up in logistics Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times in such like nitty gritty logistics when you think of things on such a large scale like that yeah that it's like if yeah if we started thinking like that that would be really yeah really rad yeah (laughs) like it'd be great and like yeah it's so helpful that even if it's such a simplified model it tells you so much about like it just makes you think about Mm -hmm. how we exist in a different way definitely reading that book (laughs) me too it's only like seven hours as an audiobook. I don't think my library had it as a physical or like as a ebook. So I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. No, I've kind of been getting back into audiobooks. Yeah. And me too. It's been, it's been good. Um, We are going to switch gears and talk about <laughs> a different conspiracy theory. <laughs> different conspiracy theory. Um, my sources are Scientific American, Nature.com, NPR smithsonian magazine the outline and then a little bit of wikipedia just because i always second guess everything and need to know dates and places Mm -hmm. and you know how it is i feel you um anyway so i wanted to talk about one of the most famous cryptids maybe only to be outdone by the loch ness monster uh and that is bigfoot um (laughs) often described as a very tall very hairy bipedal ape person i partially think Maybe why this is such a well-known cryptid is that it covers a lot of land and is kind of like seen across cultures. Mm. Um, whereas I feel like there are a lot of very local cryptids like the Jersey Devil, like or you know what I mean. Like there's very specific. They, they're <laughs> in a very Ness, specific yeah. lock lo- in literally like one 
lake, like very local. But Bigfoot uh, are known as Bigfoot in the United States, uh, Sasquatch in Canada. Obviously, like if you said a Sasquatch, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But like that kind of comes from there. And then Yeti uh, are like the Bigfoot of the Himalayas. Hmm. So kind of across the world, there have been alleged sightings of, you know, tall, bipedal, hairy, people-looking things. <laughs> so while settlers in North America reported seeing Bigfoot um, kind of around the late 1800s, I believe, Bigfoot is a part of many indigenous stories. Uh, the Chehalis, who reside in what is now British Columbia, Canada, have many songs and stories about Saskets, uh, spelled S-A-S-Q apostrophe E-T-S, which means hairy man in one of their dialects. And now uh, Sasket, that, you know, it sounds very similar to Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where the word Sasquatch came from. The Shahilis believe that Saskets are shapeshifters uh, and they protect the land and they protect people as well. Um, and then in addition to like what we think of as a Sasquatch, they can take the form of rocks or trees or other animals. So they're like shapeshifters and that they're also said to be able to walk between the physical and spiritual realms. Mm. So um, I know like some people say that they just disappear. Maybe that could be an explanation for that in like their stories. Yeah. But overall, Sasquatch and Bigfoot, they seem like really chill dudes. Like you don't really hear of like Bigfoot attacks, which I feel like you hear that a lot with like other cryptids, but they're obviously super elusive. And when they do appear, they're said to be giving off like protector vibes, even if they're like them showing up is, can kind of be seen as a warning. It doesn't seem like necessarily a sinister warning. It's like a helpful warning, mm. if that makes sense. But how, with over 3,313 reported sightings between 1921 and 2013, how is there not any scientific evidence of this? Because that's a lot of people to say they have seen Bigfoot, which maybe a lot of them are fake and they're just like, want attention. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah, I see them in my backyard like squirrels. But it's like, that's a lot. Like, Thousands of people have said that they've seen it. Right. One explanation is that our brains are just like meant to like see things. Kind of like if you see a rope on the ground, you might be like, ah, it's a snake. <laughs> and then it's like not a snake. Or like you're, you recognize faces in things. It makes sense that like if you're walking through the woods and you see a tree that kind of looks like a tall person that you might be like, ah, a tall person. That seems threatening and your brain just kind of like makes that connection. Yeah. And then you're like, they disappeared. It's just a tree. <laughs> and then it was just a tree all along. Um, but the, the so that is to go from like that happening where you're like, oh, lol, I thought that was a person and it's just a tree to really thinking, oh, no, that you saw Bigfoot. you saw a Bigfoot and then reporting it and then reporting it. It's a little. Eh, but like that is like one explanation. Mm hmm. Joshua Stevens, who is a data scientist and a cartographer, he mapped all of those sightings out. And when you put them on a map, it kind of like as little like pinpoints, mm -hmm. 
it kind of looks like Bigfoot sightings are directly correlated to population density, Hmm. which kind of suggests that if there are more people in an area, there are simply more people that will say that they saw Bigfoot. Um, (laughs) Right. So like that's just it doesn't have to do with like actual sightings. It's just like given a certain number of people, this percentage of them will say they saw Bigfoot. Do you think it's also based on like the average height of that population? Like, do you think shorter populations see Bigfoot more often? I I might have to email Joshua Stevens and be like, um, I have another data point for you. Um, <laughs> I feel like that would be, that a would thing. be so funny. Yeah. You're just like, I saw a guy so tall mm-hmm. in the woods on my hike. And it's just like some like really tall hiker. Yeah. That's like in from out of town or something. Um, that is that is a very interesting. Yeah. Meanwhile, thought. in Scandinavia, they're like, nope, we don't. We've never seen nope. Skashwatch. Only just like th- that, gnomes is that, or something. Like, that's like a gnome, like small. <laughs> that's like, OK, I wonder like if there's a correlation of like tall people to short people having like big or small cryptids. Interesting. Humanoid yeah. cryptids have to think next about Halloween. that yeah <laughs> uh anyway he then made another map and he mapped zones of sightings as they relate as they relate to population density so he found that yes some areas did kind of have that like population density to bigfoot sighting correlation but there were a bunch of areas that were more sparsely populated and had like a larger more significant number of Bigfoot sightings and then Mm. there were places that were really dense that didn't have very many so if you wanted to jump to conclusions you could be like yes Bigfoot that looks like a very scientific map Mm -hmm. like Bigfoot definitely lives in those like low population high sighting places but obviously that's not necessarily true we don't know how accurate these data points are but if you were who want to go look for evidence of Bigfoot, those places that are low density, high sighting, they might be good places to start. Mm-hmm. So informative scientifically. And I will put those maps on socials because I, I feel like they're very interesting. Um, Hell yeah. And hopefully no one thinks that we are advocating for Bigfoot actually being real. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Basically, the biggest reason that I thought it was really interesting to, like, look into Bigfoot is that I saw a couple discussions of Bigfoot pertaining to, like, uh, scientific literacy, critical thinking, and just, like, understanding how we use data. Hmm. Um, And basically not, like, jumping to conclusions based on either unreliable data or just, like, processes that might not, like, fully show us. The full picture. Um, and I feel like all of those things are so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing how people run with conspiracy theories and not understanding science or just saying there is no science when they're just not looking at the science. Right. Um, so I thought that, like, obviously people might <laughs> want to sit around and have a little chat about scientific literacy, but I feel like talking about Bigfoot is pretty fun. Mm-hmm. So let's talk more about Bigfoot and how (laughs) Bigfoot can help us with all of those things. So I came across a couple different articles that included discussions of Bigfoot um, in talking about 
climate niche modeling. So uh, niche models basically take all of the sightings and any evidence of an org- organism existing in a space. Mm-hmm. And so that could be like poop, scat or whatever <laughs> nature people call it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Those jazz people. No, I know. I know that that's a scientific term. <laughs> Uh, or like, you know, claws on trees or like whatever. Mm. Um, so you combine sightings, that kind of evidence with geographical and climate data to try to figure out where you might find more of that organism. Mm. So like maybe, okay, we found them in this one spot. Like this is a very similar environment and it's not too far away. Maybe we should go see if we can find more there. Mike Hickerson, who's a uh, biologist who studies biogeographic shifts, speciation, extinction, and determinants of community assembly. Uh, he was part of a study um, to track species shifting through Yosemite. Hmm. So you can imagine that, like, looking at these kind of shifts through like national parks and stuff might be especially important for endangered species. Um, because, like, Let's say an endangered species inhabits Yosemite or another protected space, but then the climate shifts and that causes them to move like outside of that. Mm-hmm. You might need to like put protections in other spaces for that spe- species as it moves. So looking at endangered species or lesser known species of insects or plants can also be interesting because... Um, sightings could be few and far between of like them actually existing and um, so it's just like not as comprehensive of a data set Um, and then also you know if they're really rare people might not know what they look like or they might have a look-alike species Mm -hmm. Um, and like especially things with like insects and stuff um, you know like those might be really easy to mix up yeah or again they might be like super rare I feel like whenever like I feel like you hear about people discovering new like species of things and like a lot all of the time yeah there's or there's also so many like insects. um isn't there a invasive species that looks really similar to a, a ladybug and it's like ladybugs are fine and non-invasive and then there's like a kind of mm, orange looking maybe one, you know that's like basically maybe, one iteration yeah. different okay but it's so you might think it's this really cool thing or like help them grow in your garden when no, yeah. you shouldn't be doing yeah. that. So, um, but yeah, so maybe someone might say, oh, I, I saw a ladybug and like, no, you didn't. You saw this other thing. Um, and that's important to know. But the data going into like that comes out of those observations could be incorrect, mm. especially and probably would become more likely to be incorrect the rarer something is or the more it looks like other things. Basically, Hickerson and his colleagues started taking Bigfoot sighting data and making niche models and he kind of after like going through this he 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 joked and this was all kind of just like for funsies but he joked that the preliminary read of the data was that there'd been more sightings in the northern bit of Sasquatch territory I guess kind of implying that like through looking at like niche modeling with climate change that like they were moving north Mm. um but Oh, I thought it was going to be because, like, if they were talking about North America, that we have poor scientific literacy. So we might be more likely to 
report. Oh, I mean, that, Bigfoot that could be that could be as well. But I think it's specifically talking about like shift. It's more about like the shifting of the population yeah. of the population rather than our scientific literacy. But like <laughs> also fair, fair read of that. It's a burn. So the biggest deal here is that taking like likely false or unreliable data can come up with a model that looks pretty scientifically legitimate but so it would be very easy to convince people to get on board with something or that things are fine based on this like cool chart and like you can apply that to endangered species because if there's not enough data or that's analyzed incorrectly you could come up with like very legitimate looking um stories Hmm. but there might be a lot more that needed to go into that to have like an accurate representation. Um, so there's like a lot of <laughs> connections between like cryptid sightings and then endangered species mm. sightings and analysis. So looking at niche modeling in general, especially taking again into considered cryptid sightings, there are a couple of biases to look out for. Um, for, for any of you niche modeling scientists <laughs> out there. Um But, like, I just think that this is very interesting, even just, like, when you're thinking about stuff. But, like, basically, like, if there are more sightings of something um, along roads, that doesn't necessarily mean that that species lives on roads. It might just mean that, like, that's where people see them Mm. because we're on roads. Um, Same with, um, like, again, Bigfoot oftentimes showing up around where there's more people. It might just be that... It's not that Bigfoot necessarily likes to live around people. It's that there are more people to see Bigfoot, Hmm. which is exactly why biologist Jeff Lozier used Bigfoot as an example to basically say models are only as good as the data that goes into them. And even if good data goes into models, their predictions of where species will go uh, and which ones are at most risk of extinction will be imprecise and uncertain. Ecologist Karsten Rabeck who is based in Copenhagen, was trying to work out similar models for the Yeti. And um, they said, we in the modeling community need to be a bit more humble about how precise our predictions are and acknowledge the errors of estimates, which are huge more than we do. It's just damn hard to predict the future. And all of these different (laughs) different scientists that were kind of like talking about... um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti, um, a lot of these articles kind of all came out around 2009. And a lot of them, like, they were all very, like, we're kind of doing this as a joke just for fun. Mm -hmm. But, like, there actually is this real application for, like, viewing blind spots that we might have for actual real species. So it's been quite a while since all of this kind of was in in the space of scientific discussion. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very cool to think that like if niche modeling has improved, that it's possibly because people were thinking scientifically about cryptids and the way people view like nature and seeing different species and all that. And hopefully that made the model stronger. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's very fun. Yeah. It is also just interesting how so many cryptids are based in like nature and things that we might not completely understand. So like understanding those things better can allow us to understand 
the origins of the cryptids better and maybe like yeah exactly. why they show up in certain um cultures and not in others or certain locations whatever yeah exactly so another thing that i thought was really interesting is that like if we do ever find bigfoot um one thing that specifically cryptozoologists like people who study cryptids uh get really Such excited cool about title by the way right right um so one thing that they get really excited about is like instances in which like we find alive uh <laughs> like examples of extinct species so there is a prehistoric fish called the coelacanth hmm. which was thought to be extinct until a fisherman off the coast of south africa caught one in 1938 and they were like well how do you catch one if it's a deep sea I, fish i don't know if it was a deep sea it was just prehistoric oh i see i see so it was like it's been around since prehistoric times but like and people thought it was dead. I'm sure there have been fossils and stuff. Mm -hmm. But someone was just like, oh, shit, this fish is not like anything I've ever <laughs> seen before. Um, and um, if, if you Google it, uh, it's a it's spelled C-O-E-L-A-C-A-N-T-H. But coelacanth. Uh, but if you Google it, like everything says like living fossils. Um, oh, so so cool. they're just very they've been around for a long time. But the coelacanth is an example of a Lazarus taxon, which is a term for organisms thought to be extinct only to be later found living in the wild. So you could very much think that like maybe there are stories and like I feel like a lot of cryptids, like the stories of them have come about in the last like hundred years. So like I don't know if that necessarily counts, but stories that have like a lot of folklore around mm -hmm. them, like could that have been an actual those could could have those been actual accounts of real creatures um that we maybe will discover again i don't know because like another example of cryptids kind of being proven real in an instance are with tales of like sea monsters and like crazy things that sailors saw in the oceans hmm. because like we really only found proof of giant squids like 150 years ago so which isn't very long yeah that's um, crazy and, like, can you imagine seeing a fucking giant squid and being, like, I, that is, that is scary. Or you just see, like, a leg and you're, like, what the what was that? was that? So, you never know. I feel like we, we know a good bit at this point. But, like, there's so much of Earth, even, like, deep sea mm -hmm. stuff or just, like, areas of, like, woods that maybe there's some little guys in there. Or maybe a Bigfoot. Who knows? <laughs> Another thing with Bigfoot that I think is really cool is that journalist Laura Krantz wrote a book for kids about Bigfoot that focuses on um, talking about them while staying grounded in science. Hmm. I guess her, like a family member of hers, like her grandfather's cousin, was an anthropology professor who was like a huge Bigfoot believer, like absolutely dead set that Bigfoot was real. So she kind of started asking questions like, how can you hold on to being a scientist and also onto this idea of Bigfoot at the same time? And does anything stand up to rigorous scientific exploration and investigation? Mm. Um, so basically the book is kind of getting kids to look at Bigfoot and be like, okay, if they're real, what would their family tree would look like? You know, like, would they be related to humans? What might their DNA look like? Like, what are their traits? Yeah. She says that, you know, a lot of believers say that Bigfoot vanishes. But 
she doesn't necessarily mean like people could be like, you know, that's like a mystical thing. Like he can turn invisible. I don't know why Bigfoot is always a he. Yeah. In my mind. <laughs> it is interesting, uh, though. He or she. Yeah. I don't know what, <laughs> what that is. But maybe it doesn't mean that Bigfoot can turn invisible. M- maybe it's that they're very good at camouflage and have like twigs and leaves. They they like put it in their fur. Mm. Um, or maybe they're very like well adapted to their environment and they can like blend in or they're very quiet. So basically, like what could be possible? What would be a logical explanation for that part of the legend? And then she pulls everything together so nicely by saying, I think for some people, it's the idea that the world is still wild enough and untamed and unpaved and unexplored that something like Bigfoot could be out there. I think we want that sense of mystery and that feeling that there's still things to find out there because if we already know everything, then, well, what's the fun in that? Mm -hmm. I think, too, there's a sort of recognition that we need to preserve these wild spaces. It's almost an environment, uh, environmental mandate, a desire to preserve the sorts of spaces that Bigfoot could exist in, even if Bigfoot doesn't really exist. Mm. So I thought that was really cute. And the book is called The Search for Sasquatch by Laura Krantz. I love that. If you if if you have kids or like kids in your family that you want to get into science or kids that are very interested in science, um, but also like to have fun and love fun like fairy tales and stories, like that could be a very fun book for them. Yeah, Christmas is coming up. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, should I buy that for my little... niece who's not even one and hasn't said her first word? <laughs> Maybe not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> bedtime stories um so I just thought that was really cute and I do think like there is a wholesome desire for Bigfoot to exist in that like nature and like unexplored stuff and again the want to like preserve it which I think is very cool I love that yeah okay and then I have a bonus cryptid thing okay that is not Bigfoot but it has to do with niche modeling so I was like, I, it, when are we going to talk about this again? <laughs> it's never going to be appropriate. Uh, so chupacabras are a pretty well-known cryptid. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of described as like a, a scary dog bear thing, monster that like will attack livestock. Are they three-headed uh, or no? Not necessarily. No, they're just, uh, I think just one-headed. Okay. They're just like a scary little dog guy. But the first reported sighting was in Puerto Rico, but they've been spotted in Mexico and the southern U.S. And it's kind of a bummer because the biggest theory for like what chupacabras are is that they're basically just dogs with mange, Mm. which is a skin disease caused by mites. And like dogs will lose their hair. But if it's left untreated, it gets like scabby and like kind of gross and scary. And like if you look it up, dogs like they look kind of gnarled and like kind of terrifying Mm -hmm. like if you think of like any illustrations of what like I feel like there's a lot of like demon dog horror movie like yeah I feel like dogs can be like (laughs) like an omen of death or like that creepy like like basically I don't know like I have a specific image of what comes to mind like snarly yeah it makes me think of of, like the ASPCA commercials where they're like Really okay, sad pictures that. of dogs. Yeah, they look really. Yeah. But like if you saw a dog like that, like 
in the night or yeah. you saw one of them running that off was, with one of your chickens or something. You ticked off their survival instincts. I would not want to be around them. Yeah. Like they'd be pretty probably they're probably in pain. Mm-hmm. And so they're probably aggressive. Um, and also they might be probably hungry because um, they're not being cared for. So they might kill livestock and try to eat them. But one of the predictions with climate change and this is this is such a bummer. I'm uh, I'm so, sorry to end on this. I just think it's so interesting. But with climate change, uh, one of the people in one of the articles said that there, they predict that there will be increased sightings of chupacabras in areas farther north hmm. since dogs with mange left alone outside in colder climates often die pretty quickly, um, which is a bummer. But they said potentially as things get warmer uh folks in the north might be getting more uh chupacabra sightings that's wild so if yeah so if if you hear down the road that like there's more chupacabra sightings farther north um or or people in the north start hearing more about chupacabras it might just be that like stray dogs that are that have mange are surviving longer because of (laughs) The warmer weather. Oh. So that's a big bummer. But I, I just like what? Um, but it is so fascinating. And just like that, that could feed into lore of chupacabras. Yeah. But it's all very scientifically explained. And there's all like a very logical explanation for it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So cool. That's, that's all I have. Good job. Uh, looking at, at folklore and cryptozoology from a scientific lens mm-hmm. can be very interesting and can inform other science things which is just so cool. i love that so. that's great yeah lot, lots for our yeah. reading list now um should we go to the dump yeah let's go to the dump uh do you have something in particular yeah i do and it reminds me honestly so much of what you were talking about in your story yeah. so i decided to read because i was like i i feel like i need i i don't know like i've been keeping up with my podcast but i've kind of just like feel like I've been running out of them and then like I don't want to do chores yeah so I was like okay let's get on some audiobooks I read the I'm glad my mom died by Jeanette oh McCurdy, yeah which was really really good and just like very interesting um and I'm also just excited to see like what she does in the future yeah I really want to read that I've heard so much about it yeah it's it's really good and I, I love audiobooks read by the author mm-hmm. when it's about them so that was really cool but then I got through that pretty quickly and then um, I was like, okay, what am I gonna, what am I gonna read? What am I gonna read? And then I decided to jump on to Hank Green's books. Always good, an incredible, yeah, an absolutely remarkable thing, and a beautifully foolish endeavor. And I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes with like the Green brothers writing, I'm like, that's such a like, I don't know, it's a thing of the past. But like reading these no. books, they're so. F- I'm a I know. It's, uh, that's actually I haven't read these I books. Yes. I've. I, I should have. I'm very interested by the concepts. I've read the backs of them many times and I follow him like both of them pretty closely. But I'm yeah. curious what you thought. Yeah. So the first one was just like very fun. And I feel like it's like it. it's kind of sci-fi. I mean, it is sci-fi for sure. It's just a very like modern take on like people's reactions and mm. like how we view things and how we approach things. Like internet culture, um, right? Kind of internet culture tech culture capitalism entertainment Mm -hmm. 
it's just like a very and it's also interesting to read and then think of like who Hank Green is yeah. and like how his experience has probably informed a lot of this. Um, and then the second one gets into a lot of the stuff that you talked about in a like very specifically weird way. Mm. So if you thought if like you're interested by Olivia, what you're talking yeah. about, like that those books are are something that I do. Those in. are on my list. Like those might be my holiday reads as like I feel like yeah. they're books that you could barrel through like and it's nice. It's they nice are. sometimes yes. when you have like the um, sequel or trilogy like already like laid out in front of you. It's out. So you kind of mm-hmm. have an idea of like how people respond to each book or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'll put yeah. those on my list. I love him. Yeah. Yes. No, it's it's really good. And it's it they're just like they're very interesting and like have very interesting scientific concepts in them. They are also just like very entertaining and very like cliffhangery. I want to read what what's next. Yeah. So very fun. Would recommend. Yeah. I love listening to things. It makes me like do more dishes. Yeah. <laughs> and like Or just like nice to keep things neat. I don't know, mm-hmm. feel feel like educated without having to look at it obviously there are benefits to like reading a book um yes, normally absolutely but then also yeah. it's so nice to I love going on like walks or I was just on a, a bus mm-hmm. to Philly and stuff and I listened to an audiobook the whole way there and back and it's like such a great thing yeah no I love it it's a good like dog walking yeah activity yeah um so yeah that's pretty much that's pretty much all I have but yeah I've uh, torn through like yeah two and a half books since the time we last recorded yeah. a week ago. That's that's impressive, especially a week. Like like those are pretty long books. I know I've like rented the audiobook before. Maybe it's been a little long, but still maybe. But I I don't think I finished. That's like a nine hour. I think the first Hank Green book was like a, like maybe in between nine and twelve hours, and then the second one is long. I think it's like a fifteen hour read. Mm-hmm. So I'm not done with that yet, but. Just walking the dog, doing dishes, like Perfect. getting ready, do, getting ready for bed. Yeah, like I just have been listening. It's been very entertaining. That's funny. Um, I've been listening to what what I was doing while you were breeding, which is actually a book that I have the physical copy of and read half of like okay. a long time ago and loved it. Uh-huh. It's like basically about this comedy writers like when she has her like three month breaks from her shows that she works on. She it's a memoir and she goes on like all mm-hmm. of these vacations and stuff. It's a book I've like recommended to people in the past, but I realized that I never actually finished it. So I started okay. listening yeah. to, which is very typical me, um, by the way, yeah. to read half of a book and be like, it's amazing. Be like, it's so good. I'm not going to finish <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but I, so I'm, I'm finishing it. I'm halfway through the audiobook and I'm like st- maybe sort of getting to the spot where I haven't heard as much of it. Um, and it's so fun mm-hmm. to hear, like, especially a book that I've read the physical copy of to like hear it. I don't think it's not read by the author, but it's still like just funny to hear those stories, like almost as if a friend is telling you them. Um, yeah. And another thing that I will I watched this week was uh, a movie that you talk about all the time. And I thought, again, it's kind of another one that I thought I had seen, but I hadn't is Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Oh, okay. Thoughts? I watched slash rewatched it last week. I can't really remember. Okay. But um, I loved it. I mean, it's just like. Okay. I That's one that I hype up like probably too yeah. much. Not um, a good allegory for climate just, change, but so interesting no. as a movie, like just as a movie. And I love Steve Carell. Yeah. Yeah. And just like that, because like that was like when I was talking about like, it's such a good, good, good metaphor for just like our mortality. Yeah. And, and like 
just enjoying people and like how important relationships mm-hmm. can be, how long or short they are. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes me cry. And it's also so funny. Yeah. I love and it. also it's funny um, when they, I forget if it's two or three weeks, but they like know that this thing is going to happen and that they can have no control over it. So there's none of the like, don't look up scrambling, at least not from Steve Carell's perspective or Keira Knightley's. Some people do. And there's some weird religious things that they like pass by oh, but yeah. aren't part of, which is very yeah. fun to kind of like see that from the outside. But then like people that are just like, yeah and it's just so funny they're like trying to make the most yeah they have this like end date and this like huge thing that's gonna happen and they still like get bored and get sad when their tv turns off you know it's just like so fascinating to me because that's so true to like how we are we can be in the middle of like a crisis and as long as the active crisis is not happening we can be like oh what the heck and just like bored or let's watch overstimulated by Yeah. yeah silly things um yeah I think that's so interesting so yeah that was a that was a good movie to watch I, over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have for me. Should we do socials? Awesome. Yeah, let's do socials. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at World is Burning No G. We have, I feel like, a bunch of fun things to post. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also on TikTok at World is Burning with a G. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, story ideas, you can email us at worldisburningpod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to give us five stars on Spotify and iTunes or Apple listening to podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Apple podcasts. Apple podcasts yeah. <laughs> um, because that helps. Um, yeah. If you see an option to give us five stars nice. or a hundred percent, please do it. Wherever it is. But if you see an option to give us less than that, then you can email yeah. us again at worldisbrightpod mm-hmm. at gmail.com and tell us how we can improve and what we can do to make you give us five mm-hmm. stars. Um, anyway, I think that is all. Happy Halloween. Uh, stay safe. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.